Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the arrest of a top FBI counterintelligence agent in New York who is charged with corruption and money laundering, who received money from a Russian oligarch with ties to Trump's campaign manager in 2016. Joining us is Jeff Stein, the editor and founder of Spy Talk, and a deputy foreign news editor at United Press International, a veteran national security reporter previously with Newsweek and the Washington Post. He specializes in U.S. intelligence, defense, and foreign policy, and is the author of A Murder in Wartime, the untold spy story that changed the course of the Vietnam War. We'll discuss his latest article at Spy Talk, Secret Agent Man, the Mysterious Charlie McGonagall, and whether there are ties between a possible spy for the Kremlin, McGonagall, and the New York FBI officer's pressure on Comey to reopen the Hillary Clinton emails case just before the 2016 elections, which Hillary Clinton claims cost her the election. Then, with classified documents found at President Biden's home and now at former Vice President Pence's home in Indiana, we'll examine the classification mania on the part of the government and the asymmetry between the understaffed National Archives who are trying to preserve the historical record and the $18 billion a year government classification machine that keeps secrets from the American people and is slow to declassify them. Joining us is Matthew Connolly, a professor of international and global history at Columbia University and the principal investigator at History Lab, a National Science Foundation-funded project to apply data science to the problem of preserving the public record and accelerating its release. His books include A Diplomatic Revolution, Algeria's Fight for Independence and the Origins of the Post-Cold War Era, and Fatal Misconception, The Struggle to Control World Population, And his latest book out in February is The Declassification Engine, What History Reveals About America's Top Secrets. Then finally, we'll check in with the doomsday clock at the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists that is now 90 seconds from midnight as the Ukraine war raises nuclear tensions between Russia and the U.S. and NATO. Joining us is Daniel Hulse, co-chair of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists Science and Security Board and a professor at the University of Chicago, the Enrico Family Institute, and the Kavli Institute of Cosmological Physics. We'll discuss his article at CNN, co-written with former California Governor Jerry Brown. The doomsday clock is ticking. Clock's hands move closest ever to midnight and catastrophe. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial-free independence as we build our online podcast audience, broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide, expand our production team, create a new home for our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org, and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls. If you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution, visit backgroundbriefing.org donate where your tax-deductible contributions, large and small, enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Jeff Stein, the editor and founder of Spy Talk and a deputy foreign news editor at United Press International, a veteran national security reporter previously with Newsweek and The Washington Post. He specializes in U.S. intelligence, defense, and foreign policy, and is the author of A Murder in Wartime, the untold spy story that changed the course of the Vietnam War. And his latest article at Spy Talk is Secret Agent Man, the Mysterious Charlie McGonagall. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jeff Stein. Thank you. Nice to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Jeff. And in your article, Secret Agent Man, the Mysterious Charlie McGonagall, of course, Charlie McGonagall was arrested a few days ago, uh, getting off a plane, I think from Sri Lanka. And it turns out that he was on the payroll of the oligarch close to Putin, Deripaska, and had worked, appears to have worked for Albanian intelligence, which has always been a proxy for the Russians. So, You write in your article 
that McGonagall may well have been part of an anti-Hillary Clinton clique in the New York office who helped pressure FBI Director James Comey to reopen the Bureau's investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails found on Anthony Weiner's laptop only days before the 2016 election. So I guess the huge looming question, Jeff, is did McGonagall pressure Comey to go public at the behest of the Russians? And if so, that was, after all, Hillary Clinton believes and has said many times that Comey's going public at that point just before the election cost her the election. So if it turns out that McGonagall was doing it at the behest of his Kremlin handlers, that is huge, is it not? Well, those are two huge leaps you're making that I think are unsupportable uh, at the moment. First position is, uh, the first point is that McGonagall was in no position to pressure Comey. Comey is the director of the FBI. Uh, McGonagall, several uh, rungs below that, he was the head of counterintelligence for the New York division. And now that's a hugely uh, influential uh, office, uh, just like the Southern District of New York is a hugely almost independent office of the Justice Department. But McGonagall was not in any position to order uh uh, Comey to do anything. Secondly, we don't have any fact to support that that uh, McGonagall was a witting agent uh, or even uh, unwitting agent of Russia. Uh, that's that's just a leap too far. What we have just from the bare bones Justice Department announcements is that he was uh, tied up with Derespaka. Was working for Derespaka, go between for Derespaka. Uh, and um, we know that Derespaka is a close uh, crony of Putin uh, for the moment, uh, although he's begun speaking out against the uh, Ukraine war, so maybe he's, maybe he's not such a close friend anymore. But in any event, um, no, th- th- those are just two leaps forward. What we do know, uh, and as I reported in my piece, is that the New York office was sort of a den of anti-Clinton sentiment um, in 2016. Now, again, that would not be all that surprising because, you know, law enforcement officials, police, they tend to be very conservative or at least conservative. And um, in general, um, it's not customary for FBI agents at any level to be sitting around the office and grousing about the Clintons or grousing about any political issue. It's just not done. You know, it's like uh, farting at the table. <laughs> I mean, you just, it, it, it's just not done. Uh, and I, you know, I, as you know, I had a short stint in intelligence work myself many years ago uh, in Vietnam. And I was, you know, Really, I, I really detested the war and the war around me, but I kept my head down and I went ahead and did my work gathering intelligence on the North Vietnamese Army. Um, so it's just it's, in intelligence, it's just it's just not it's not good form. It would be very odd to be uh, speaking out loud. Having said that, however, um, the head the head various heads of the New York office have been you know, close to uh, Giuliani and Trump throughout the years. And uh, it's been widely reported that there there was an overwhelming sentiment, uh, anti-Clinton sentiment in the New York office. And because of that, when the New York office learned about Clinton's emails on her close confidant, Huma Abedin's laptop, um, you know, Comey knew that this would eventually get out and that he had to reopen the investigation, announce that he was reopening the investigation. There's a lot of dispute whether that was how stupid that was or how unethical it was of, uh, or inept of uh, uh, Comey to do that. But the FBI uh, was investigating, you know, and found these uh, Clinton emails from when she was Secretary of State on the laptop. And so anyway, it ended up 
um, you know, really destroying the Clinton campaign. There's no doubt about that. But to place McGonagall in the middle of it, other than that he was in an environment, and according to a source of mine who knew McGonagall well, that source, as I quote in the piece, he said he would not be surprised if McGonagall had joined in that uh, that crowd in the New York office, uh, and because he was a, a hugely ambitious guy, whether he might have thought to impress Giuliani, who was mayor, or others in the Trump orbit, sources I talked to said it would not surprise them that if he did that. Mm-hmm. Uh, others draw a more conspiratorial conclusion about that, but I, I, I've just taken it as far as uh, I can at this time. Sure. But what do we know about the New York office? We certainly know that Giuliani went public and kept saying there's going to be a big surprise regarding Hillary Clinton that it's going to propel Trump to victory. What do yeah. we know about what happened with that New York office who were anti-Clinton in terms of Comey? Did they pressure him? Did they say, we're going to leak this information if you don't go public? Or is that just speculation? There's, there's been reporting along those lines. That's not my story. It's just a small part of my story um, that McGonagall was in that environment and that others uh, have cast that in a very uh, negative light. Um, the eminent presidential historian Michael Betchelos was drawing a dotted line between on Twitter um, and uh, it was very provocative and surprising to me that this very cautious presidential historian would be suggesting if there was a link between McGonagall arriving um, in the New York office in the fall, you know, just weeks before the um, presidential election of 2016 in this uh, anti-Clinton soup in that office. Um, and then according to my sources, he, you know, uh, for various reasons, would have joined that click. This is all speculation at, at this point, but it's troubling. So right. that's where we're with it. Well, McGonagall, that was involved with the Carter Page case, was he not? A little bit. As my source says, uh, my sort of really in a position to know and who I believe says, you know, McGonagall was the top counterintelligence guy in the New York office. And that, and he, so therefore everything involving counterintelligence would have come under his purview, but he was a top guy. He was not a, a field agent, a grunt. He did not, he would have, uh, you know, given a, maybe a green check mark to the investigations of Carter Page and the FISA application to uh, search Page's, um, you know, home and phone and whatever happened under that FISA warrant. But he wouldn't have um, been intimately involved in it, uh, but he definitely would have been aware of it. So what's the connection then with McGonagall and the New York Times reporter who early on said there's no there there in the Russia-Trump conspiracy stories, which prompted Democratic leader of the Senate, Harry Reid, to talk about the FBI's double standard. He, he wrote a letter yeah. to Comey saying, which is quoting from the article, it has become clear that you possess explosive information about close ties and coordination between Donald Trump, his top advisor in the Russian government, a foreign interest openly hostile to the United States which Trump praises at every opportunity, but you continue to resist calls to inform the public of this critical information. So what's the connections there in terms of McGonagall and the New York Times report? Look, I'm trying to be very careful here and not go beyond what I know for sure. Um, So I can't answer that question. I can't say that there's any direct connection between McGonagall and our times. Again, I'll restate that McGonagall was uh, in, uh, had joined an office that, uh, where uh, a number of people were uh, uh, reportedly expressing uh, anti-Clinton behaviors, uh, remarks, 
uh, sentiment. And um, the New York Times, based on, you know, law enforcement sources, which means the FBI, had reported that there was nothing to the Trump-Russia story. So and that was days before um, the election, just days before the election. Right? Days be- right. Yeah, between that and the email story, um, you know, Clinton, who was comfortably leading Trump um, until then, her, her campaign was just crushed. But I can't drop. I, I'm, I'm just saying what I reported in my story was that McGonagall had joined an office, which was pretty overtly in, in terms of intelligence work pretty overtly anti-Clinton. And these anti-Clinton stories um, uh, uh, came out in the New York Times. Uh, But I can't say that McGonagall talked to the New York Times. I don't know that. So, possible. But Jeff, what do we know about his connections to the Russians then? There's not much coming out of the indictment, the arrest. But what we've learned and is that there $225,000 was paid to him from a former Albanian intelligence agent and that he got from Oleg Deripaska, the oligarch who was obviously was involved with the campaign manager of Trump's. We know that Deripaska loaned, um, loaned Manafort something like $30 million, which went missing, and you don't want a guy like Deripaska after you. And then suddenly Manafort was able to change the Republican platform at the convention that nominated Trump to make it more Russia-friendly. And it seems like the pressure from Deripaska to pay back the loan that went away. So those connections are out there. But he was on a $25,000 monthly payment from a former Russian diplomat who worked as an interpreter, right, who was close to... Deripaska. So yeah. is that the connection? Yeah, that's all we know. Again, as I stated, the bare bones announcements from the Justice Department don't go beyond that. Right. I think we're going to learn a lot about, um, I mean, it's very worrisome <laughs> that, uh, you know, the top former, the former top counterintelligence guy in the New York division, which is the huge office, critically important office when it comes to counter espionage that this guy was playing footsie with the russians through uh you know these russian connections but we don't he was not indicted for espionage you know mm-hmm. he was not indicted under the espionage law and so uh, uh we may eventually find out that that he was in fact committing espionage and they may pressure him into admitting that in, in, in exchange for a lesser sentence. Uh, that typically happens. And they may, you know, through various uh, psychological means, say, look, Charlie, uh, uh, you had, you know, 25 years of, uh, or 20 years of honorable service to your country. Uh, people make mistakes. You, you, you went off the rails. That's bad. It's bad. And I, I'm sure you, you regret it, especially now that you've been arrested. But, you know, you can help your own conscience, help yourself, help your country by telling us the full story, and we'll give you a break on sentencing uh, or the charges. We'll drop some of these other charges. So that's, t- that, that, that's what typically happens in these cases. So um, I think we're going to learn more eventually. You may see a superseding indictment of McGonagall on uh, espionage charges. Um, uh, reporters on the national security beat, myself and others, uh, will certainly be finding out more about uh, McGonagall's activities in the coming days and weeks. So it's, uh, you know, it's a classic case of stay tuned. There's a lot, uh, there's a lot more to be learned here. Well, Jeff Stein, we're grateful for what we've learned so far from you, and I appreciate you joining us here today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And again, I'll be speaking with Jeff Stein, who's the editor and founder of Spy Talk and a deputy foreign news editor at United Press International, a veteran national security reporter previously with Newsweek and The Washington Post. He specializes in U.S. intelligence, defense, and foreign policy, and is the author of A Man, A Murder in Wartime, the untold spy story that changed the course of the Vietnam War. And his latest article at Spy Talk is Secret Agent Man, the Mysterious Charlie McGonagall. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into 
the government's classification mania, and the asymmetry between the understaffed National Archives who are trying to preserve the historical record and the $18 billion a year government classification machine that keeps secrets from the American people and is slow to declassify them. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Matthew Connolly, a professor of international and global history at Columbia University and the principal investigator at History Lab, a National Science Foundation-funded project to apply data science to the problem of preserving the public record and accelerating its release. His books include A Diplomatic Revolution, Algeria's Fight for Independence and the Origins of the Post-Cold War Era, and Fatal Misconception, The Struggle to Control World Population. And his latest book out in February is The Declassification Engine, What History Reveals About America's Top Secrets. Welcome to Background Briefing, Matthew Connolly. Good to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Matthew. And of course, there's a lot of discussion now uh, since there have been a bunch of classified documents found at Biden's home and now at the home of in Indiana of former Vice President Pence. And, of course, the earlier scandals involving Trump's theft of documents and his refusal to hand them over that resulted in a FBI raid in order to repatriate these documents. And now there's a special prosecutor looking into him. So in the midst of all this... There have been a lot of calls suggesting that there's too much classified documents, but it would seem to me that what's happening now is that the weight of these stories with Pence and Biden, along with Trump, are such that maybe the average American thinks that it's no big deal. You know, everybody does it. Do you think that's the current thinking in the, amongst the population? Well, I, I think, you know, if it were the case, uh, that and I agree that you know there's more and more evidence now, right? Uh, how it is that that former officials uh, have what turn out to be public records. If it's the case that everybody does it, then you know I think that we should be even more upset about it because when you think of it, uh, what it is that they're taking really belongs to us, you know, the American people. The reason why these records are supposed to be deposited at the National Archives is because. You know, the National Archives has the responsibility to gather and you know preserve our heritage, right? This all of this ultimately belongs to history. The reason why you know this isn't just an academic concern is that you know just think of it: how is it we're supposed to hold our leaders to account if they won't even leave us a record of their actions? So I think it's actually something quite serious. Though I at least am not as worried about the national security implications of this. What, what I worry about is how it seems, you know, our government only cares about this kind of thing when it turns out that it's classified records that are taken, as opposed to all the other records that might go missing. But in terms of prosecution and the law and the special counsel, I don't see how the government can have a double standard. I mean, if you put people like Reality Winner in jail, then why not put Trump in jail? Well, there is this thing, you know, prosecutorial discretion, you know, where they will, you know, decide which laws they want to enforce and against whom. Uh, you know, if you look, for example, at the Mar-a-Lago raid and you look at the laws cited uh, to uh, justify why it is that they sent agents into, into Mar-a-Lago, uh, there were a few different laws uh, cited. One of them was the Espionage Act. Uh, another, though, was the uh, Federal Records Act, uh, because these laws, um, in this case, the Federal Records Act, require that um, things that are considered public records uh, be properly handled. And ultimately, you know, uh, they're deemed to be public records. They're meant to be transferred to the National Archives. But, you know, when the same law was cited uh, as uh, legitimating the inquiry of uh, Hillary Clinton and the way she handled her email, uh, eventually they decided not to bring any charges. 
And one reason was because uh, they found that this law had never been used to prosecute anyone you know, for mishandling uh, or even you know, hiding, even destroying public records. Right? So it's, it's actually much more common, all too common, you know, that the Espionage Act is used. And it's used, you know, again, only to go after instances in which people are found to have mishandled classified records. So, Matthew Connolly, let's talk about what you just suggested is the far more important issue, and that is the historical record and the extent to which presidents and, and other top officials can suppress the record of their mistakes and misdeeds, or just to simply suppress the record or write their own record. I mean, we already have a complete rewriting of history now going on on the Republican right about what happened on January the 6th. They're turning in the insurrectionists into heroes and martyrs. So you can see how quickly history can be abused. So if that's the number one issue, what you're pointing out in your new book is in the last 20 years that you've noticed that there's a paucity of documents, and particularly the histories from the 1980s and the 1970s. So is there a, an identifiable drop-off in the volume and quality of historical records for historians? Oh, absolutely. You know, the declassification program uh, at the Central Intelligence Agency has more or less ground to a halt. Uh, the State Department, which, you know, over you know, the last 150 years has been producing, you know, an official record of American foreign relations. It's called the Foreign Relations United States. There's been a dramatic diminution, you know, the numbers of records that they've been uh, getting declassified from across the, the federal government. Uh, and this is already having a big impact, you know, in terms of the, the kind of history that scholars are able to write. Um, now, this might seem, again, you know, it's an academic concern, right? Like, why is it most Americans who care? Well, when you think about it, uh, take, for example, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Now, Vladimir Putin you know, claim that one reason why they were invading Ukraine was because of the way that NATO had uh, and the United States especially had reneged on its commitments, you know, not to expand into the East and beyond Germany after the end of the Cold War. So, you know, historical records actually can be quite important, you know, in, uh, in getting to the bottom of things you know, when uh, different countries, in some cases, enemy states, you know, make claims, you know, based on the way that they interpret the record. I'll just give you a couple of other more recent examples. Um, you know, for example, uh, Brett Kavanaugh. So in the past, when uh, someone was nominated to the Supreme Court, uh, the National Archives had the responsibility you know, to gather up records if, if the person in, in question you know, had been a former official. And they did this uh, so that the Senate would be able to review those records, right, to see if there was anything relevant and important that they wanted to investigate or at least ask questions about. In the case of Brett Kavanaugh, there are voluminous records, right, because he'd been in the Justice Department for several years. Um, and if, in this case, the National Archives was completely incapable of gathering all the materials. There just wasn't enough time, and they didn't have the staff to do it because the National Archives is so grossly underfunded and understaffed. They can't even carry out these essential tasks. And the last one, and it's the one that you just mentioned, January 6th, just think of it. The Secret Service claimed that they destroyed all the, uh, they deleted all the text messages among Secret Service um, officials, uh, you know, uh, during January 6th, which I find completely implausible, right? And I think most people do. So this isn't just a matter of history, it's something that somebody else is going to write about, you know, decades from now. This can happen in real time. And in some cases, what they're trying to do is prevent investigations and try to prevent prosecutions and, and just a, a, evade accountability of every kind. So there's an asymmetry then between the, the staffing at the National Archives, the people who preserve documents for historians and for posterity, and the staffing at the people that classify documents. There are, what, between 2,000 and 3,000 appointed officials with the power to classify uh, whatever. And the U.S. government spends $18 billion on protecting national security information. So... Isn't that a clear asymmetry? Absolutely. Uh, you know, the, the two or 3,000 or so, the, that's uh, what you call people with original classification authority. And the reason why they try to keep that number low is because presidents typically don't want too many people to have the power 
to decide that some new program, some new operation can be classified as secret or top secret. So they try to keep those numbers low and they try to make sure that most of those people, you know, are, are presidential appointees or at least people would answer, you know, to uh, appointed officials. But there are millions more people, literally millions of people have security clearances of various kinds. And, you know, the numbers of, of uh, what's, so, what's called derivative classification, that is, you know, when some one of these people is producing information, whether it's a secure conference call or, or what have you, a text message, a spreadsheet, when they're creating some record, you know, that's related to some program or activity that's already considered secret or top secret, that too has to be classified at the same level. So the volume of information, you know, the, the amount of like top secret information that 1.3 million people with top secret security clearances can produce is phenomenal. And, and it's just impossible for the relatively small number of people, you know, whether working at the National Archives or working at the different FOIA offices in the different parts of our government, it's impossible for those people to, to keep up. Um, and, you know, just to give you a sense of it, uh, the other day I was looking over some records from uh, the Carter administration, and we're talking about, you know, all the way back in 1977, the National Security Agency, the part of our government that carries out surveillance, right, of, of citizens in some cases, um, but surveillance all over the world, they wanted to be totally exempt, you know, from Carter's attempts uh, to try to uh, reform the system. And one reason they said is that every day, every single day, they were producing 10,000 classified reports. Right. So that was 1977. Just imagine you know, the volume of classified information that's being produced now. And when our government spends you know, less than one percent as much on declassification as it spends on creating and protecting classified records, 18 billion, you could see that the so-called balance that presidents claim they want to strike between national security and accountability you know, is completely out of whack. There is no balance and there, there never has been. And isn't there evidence that within the government, and particularly inside the Pentagon, for example, that the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the records of their meetings have just disappeared. In other words, the Freedom of Information Act is something that they want to avoid. So oh, they, yeah. they have their meetings and then they just shred the record. Is that is that what's been going on? Yeah, back in the 1970s, uh, they uh, realized, at least this is the only you know, reason anyone could come up with, but it would seem that it was at that point they began to realize that, uh, whether because of the Freedom of Information Act or the Pentagon Papers case, but they began to realize that a lot of the records of their meetings, you know, going all the way back to the 1940s, might you know, eventually be uh, disclosed and released to the public. And so they destroyed all of those records, you know, going back decades. And not only that, but they decided that, decided that henceforth they wouldn't create new records. They wouldn't keep written records of their meetings. And so, you know, just think of it. What does it mean when, um, you know, an $800 billion department at the highest level decides they don't want to even create a record of their meetings so the rest of us could at least one day figure out what they've been doing this whole time? And, you know, you have to ask yourself, the handful of records of these uh, meetings of the Joint Chiefs and some of the things that they proposed, some of the things that did become public, you know, for instance, when they were trying to uh, carry out or at least propose carrying out attacks on American cities, you know, and sinking refugee boats to create a, a cause for invading Cuba. If, you know, they decided that it was better that nothing be released, you have to ask yourself, you know, they had to know that people would suspect that maybe there even worse things were being concealed. So, so you have to, you know, wonder, like, what is it that they were covering up? that they were willing to uh, allow the rest of us, you know, to have, I think, very well-grounded suspicion, you know, as to, you know, what it is and what more it is that we don't know and may never know. Well, that's, you know, grist for the mill for Alex Jones. I mean, I don't mean to downplay it, but what was revealed about the Cuba crisis and the machinations on the part of the CIA and the, and the Pentagon, the idea that they would was seriously discussing a false flag operation in which the United, the United States government would kill United States citizens as a provocation to then attack Cuba is just mind-boggling and frightening. I mean, we, we obviously are, are appalled at the fact that Vladimir Putin's rise to the Kremlin happened in conjunction in 1999 with the FSB blowing up a bunch of apartment buildings, killing over 300 Russians. And that's pretty disgusting. But the idea that 
the holier-than-thou U.S. government was actually thinking of the same thing. Now, it happened, what, back in the 60s, but still, this dirty laundry has to be aired, surely. Oh, you know, of course, because, you know, I think it's uh, human nature. You know, when somebody is concealing something from you, you tend to assume the worst. Now, that may not always be true, right? I mean, a lot of people would say, and I, and I happen, you know, I tend to agree with them that, you know, a lot of what's what's covered up, you know, by this, um, uh, you know, system for creating and keeping secrets, a lot of it is actually pretty banal. You know, <laughs> I mean, you know, I've looked at thousands and thousands of, of documents that were classified top secret or secret. And, you know, in, in fact, a lot of times this information was already in the public domain. You know, these things are already well known. Um, but, you know, having said that, you do find truly shocking and appalling things, you know, and, and it's not just Operation Northwoods, what we were just talking about. You know, another example, of course, is, you know, how it is that the CIA was running a program where they were dosing people to try to turn them into assassins. And they were in these records, a few that were preserved and released, you know, they were meant to target American citizens. So, you know, it wasn't just the Pentagon, but also the CIA was contemplating and even planning for, you know, attacks on American citizens and turning American citizens themselves into assassins. Now, you know, what happened to those records? We, we know this because a few of them, you know, were, were eventually, you know, released. Uh, but the CIA decided to destroy all of the rest. <laughs> and, you know, there was uh, really no um, good reason for it uh, when they were asked about it. The CIA director at the time, Richard Helms, you know, he said that, um, you know, that they didn't want to embarrass people that had uh, participated in these programs. Right. And so they just decided to get rid of all of it. <laughs> so it's, it's and of course, that wasn't the last time. Right. We, we all know, too, you know, about how Gina Haskell and others at the CIA decided they also wanted to just get rid of the videos of the, the torture that took place you know, after 9-11. Right. So. So over and over again, you know, we see these examples, some of them at least public, right, which is how we know this happens, even if we don't know the extent of it. We see public officials taking public records that belong to you and me, deciding that they're incriminating and worrying about what the implications might be. And what do they do? They go off and they destroy them so that none of us will ever know anything about it. Well, just in the last couple of minutes then, Matthew Connolly, obviously the classification mania is a bipartisan problem because under President Obama, that was an all-time high, wasn't it, of classification of documents? Yeah, when they were still trying to produce these annual like guesstimates of how many times officials classified information, they reached an all-time peak in 2012, and it was some 93 million times, or three times every second, that some official decided that something you know shouldn't be shown to the public. Uh, but you know, by 2017, they'd basically given up. And they no longer publish these figures because they, they announced that they just don't have any confidence in their ability to collect that information. Well, your work is really important. It's funded by the National Science Foundation, uh, the History Lab. Well, I, I, should, I should say, and we, we did have a very generous grant for the National Science Foundation, um, and we also have funding for the National Endowment for the Humanities. And uh, for sure, we're going to be applying for more grants from both of them. <laughs> well, keep up but, the good uh, work. Yeah. And I thank you for oh, joining us. We definitely will. And thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Matthew Connolly, who's a professor of international and global history at Columbia University and the principal investigator at the History Lab, a National Science Foundation project funded to apply data science to the problem of preserving the public record and accelerating its release. His books include Diplomatic Revolution, Algeria's Fight for Independence and the Origins of the Post-Cold War Era, and Fatal Misconception, The Struggle to Control World Population. And his latest book out in February is The Declassification Engine, What History Reveals About America's Top Secrets. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back checking in with the doomsday clock of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists that is now 90 seconds to midnight.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Daniel Hulse, co-chair of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists Science and Security Board, and a professor at the University of Chicago, the Enrico Fermi Institute, and the Kavli Institute for Cosmological Physics. He has an article at CNN co-written with former California Governor Jerry Brown, The Doomsday Clock is Ticking. Clock's hands move closest ever to midnight and catastrophe. Welcome to Background Briefing, Daniel Holtz. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And the notion that uh, the doomsday clock, which was originally started by Albert Einstein at the beginning of the nuclear age, we know we survived. We dodged the biggest bullet of all, which was a nuclear war with the Soviet Union. It's something of a miracle when you look back on the record of how many near misses we had, many of which are still classified, but there are enough on the record, like Abel Archer 83 and others, that indicate that we were incredibly lucky not to have had the world blown up during the Cold War. And now in the post-Cold War, arguably we have the worst of both worlds. We have the sense that the nuclear threat's gone away, but we still have the weapons on the Russian side, on the American side, and on the Chinese side, and the French side, and the British side all pointing at each other. So I'm not meaning the French and the British are pointing their weapons at each other, but you know what I mean, Daniel. So how come it's closer than ever now? What's going on? Yeah, well, that that was a, a great summary, and I completely agree that it's sort of miraculous that we've made it through the past decades, and um, but we did. And at the end of the Cold War, there was uh, an understandable feeling of optimism. And for what it's worth, the doomsday clock moved far away from minute from midnight all the way to seventeen minutes, um, and. And that was because there was a feeling that this stuff was in the past. The weapons were still there, but the number of weapons was decreasing. And there was hope that maybe if we didn't get all the way to zero, we would get to a small enough number and a stable enough global situation that nuclear weapons and nuclear annihilation would no longer be a very likely outcome. So. So that's where we used to be, I think, over the past years, and especially over the past year, uh, the situation has changed dramatically on the nuclear front, and that's because of Ukraine, among other things. And and so now we have a a hot war uh, in Ukraine with Russia, as you know, making threats to use weapons and with NATO getting increasingly involved and with no obvious ways to get out. Uh, At least right now, there aren't compelling ways to de-escalate, to see how this all ends um, in a way that uh, is satisfactory to the parties involved. So, So the concern there is obviously that this could end up going nuclear. But but it's more than that. It's that a lot of the kind of assumptions of the way the world works, where you know neighbors don't invade each other, uh, dangle the threat of nuclear weapons over people's heads to get them to acquiesce. That that this sort of world, um, which you know one could argue was always somewhat tenuous, is now just shown to be a complete fantasy. That's the, n- now things are different. And these sorts of things happen. So uh, we can talk more about that. But it's also, you have to remember, we made it through the Cold War. We had no clue about climate change then. Now we do. And we view climate change as an an existential risk, as something that, you know, maybe not tomorrow, but over the coming decades could threaten civilization itself if it's not addressed. And uh, that's just getting worse. Uh, as we see day by day, things are getting worse. The predictions are starting to be borne out. And um, again, the war in Ukraine, among other things, makes it increasingly difficult to make progress on climate. And that's also extremely concerning. 
And then as all that, I, there's yet one more thing just while I'm at it. Sorry to take up so much time, but there's also misinformation and disinformation. There's still a pandemic and it's just a matter of time before there's an even worse pandemic. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that is unsettling right now. And it's hard to see, to say that, you know, humanity is prepared and moving in the right direction to address all the potential threats to our existence. So in other words, the world could end in a bang or in a kind of gurgling sound as the oceans take over the land and swallow up the... Yeah, uh, the, the, that's right. So. That's right. But it's not just, you know, okay, the oceans or the, you know, temperatures getting hot, but, you know, what happens then with refugee crises and wars fought over wa water and just it destabilizes everything and it makes, for example, nuclear exchanges much more likely. And so there are lots of things that go wrong when the climate becomes uninhabitable for billions of people. So... What happened to the notion that the most likely nuclear exchange would be between India and Pakistan? Is that still on the radar at the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, or is the main concern Russia because of the escalating tensions between the U.S. and Russia over the war in Ukraine? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, all of these are concerns, and so Iran is certainly still a concern. It's nuclear program, and the way that might go, uh, India and Pakistan, uh, North Korea, there are lots of, you know, signs that make one nervous. But at the moment, the the biggest concern is when you have someone like Putin directly threatening, you know, to use nuclear weapons in situations where already, arguably, by his definition of what would constitute an attack on Russia, um, you know, red lines might have been crossed. And so it's just a very delicate situation there. So it's hard not to be kind of focused there. But yes, I completely agree with you that there are other concerns as well. And one of the issues here is while the world is so focused and distracted by Ukraine, other things are happening. And those could end up being even more problematic down the road because there just isn't the attention being paid. But in so far in the war in Ukraine, there have been a great deal of concern expressed by the International Atomic Energy Agency. There has been on fire about the Russian military's occupation of Chernobyl and Zaporizhia, where Europe's biggest nuclear power plants are. And there have been repeated calls of alarm from the head of the IAEA and I think they do have some people in there now, but mm -hmm. it's right in the middle of a, of a war zone, and there's a possibility that there could be an offensive from the Ukrainians to retake Zaporizhia. So it could, get, you know, it's been in the middle of a war zone, but it could be in a hot war zone before we know it. Yeah, yeah, and that could have disastrous consequences. I mean, that in and of itself is unlikely to be, you know, spell the doom of civilization. But, I mean, it's obviously a, a, a potentially you know, very serious situation for a lot of Europe. Um, and it also will impact, um, you know, the way nations interact and the role of nuclear power, which is still uh, at least a you know, relatively carbon-free way of generating energy. Um, there are a lot of other things that go, go wrong um, uh, if that ends up getting much worse. I mean, that, it is an absolutely terrible situation there. And uh, just the, the notion that that a nuclear facility like this can, in effect, you know, be held hostage in the middle of a war zone is, is extraordinarily unsettling. Well, Daniel, I used to work on nuclear arms control with, in between the U.S. and the Soviets at Los Alamos. And back in the Cold War, we had what was called the MAD doctrine, mutually assured destruction, where both sides were restrained from using nuclear weapons because both sides had a second strike capability that would guarantee the obliteration of essentially both sides. So it, it was a war without winners. 
and both sides seemed to understand it, and it had a kind of peculiar kind of stability. But now it's been turned on its head by Putin, who is using the threat of nuclear war as a cover to prosecute a conventional war against his neighbor in Ukraine. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's extraordinarily dangerous. And the question is, you know, what, so you could imagine at the end of all this, um, if, if, you know, know, in some sense, Putin loses and Ukraine's territory remains intact and the threat of the use of a nuclear weapon is not borne out and does not change the facts on the ground that the message is, you know, the clear message is sent, nuclear weapons are not useful. These are not weapons that can actually be used to change conflicts. And therefore, um, there's no reason for nations to seek them. And we should all just try to reduce their numbers since all they do, the, the only outcome where they end up being used is one in which all of humanity is wiped out. So, you, you, you know, you could hope for some sort of positive outcome from this, which is this war may demonstrate once and for all that nuclear weapons, you know, have no place in, in our society at this point. Um, and I'll just echo to the Cuban Missile Crisis. During the Cuban Missile Crisis, for example, the doomsday clock did not tick forward because the Cuban Missile Crisis happened very quickly. And in fact, the next time we changed the clock, it ticked away from midnight because immediately after the Cuban Missile Crisis, relations between the Soviet Union and the U.S. improved because there was a realization that um, we had gotten too close and we needed to step back from the brink. And, you know, one can hope that if we get through whatever is happening now, maybe we'll end up in a better place. But uh, we don't know, and we have to get through. And it's unclear what that's going to look like. And increasingly, it looks, you know, it's not inconceivable that the Russians might detonate a weapon, uh, a nuclear weapon. And that will signal a, a profound shift in in the sort of post-World War II order. And it's extremely frightening, uh, as I'm sure, as I'm sure you know. Well, of course, there hasn't been a nuclear weapon used in anger since Nagasaki. And if you cross the nuclear threshold, I mean, the nuclear threshold is, is a good thing in a way, because it, the nuclear taboo has lasted. And anybody who breaks that taboo, you know, then you're in uncharted territory, aren't you? And, you know, we we may end up in that territory. We don't know. And I I think arguably we're closer to that territory than we've been in a very long time. Right. But the point of nuclear doctrine from mutually assured destruction to the current situation having been turned on its head where the threat of nuclear war is being used as a shield behind which Putin is conducting a conventional war. I mean, he's using nuclear weapons as a way to get NATO to back down. And for a while, they seemed very cautious, the Germans and and, and even the Biden administration seemed cautious in the beginning about supplying Ukraine with weapons. But now they've picked up the pace and now they're going to supply tanks and all of this meets with a Russian reaction that, where they make threats and say that the U.S. is crossing a red line. So the nuclear threat is being escalated from the Russian side, and this is an exercise in calling Putin's bluff, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. There's a certain amount of brinksmanship here. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that's fine if, if the, someone somewhere is making the calculation that he won't use a nuclear weapon, that that would be foolish. It's hard to see how that would give him military advantage. He's likely, you know, it would kind of finish 
um, Russia in terms of ostracizing them from the community of nations. Uh, the, the downsides of using a weapon far outweigh any potential upside. That's the calculation and that's the message that um, I think everyone is hoping has been conveyed. But um, there's a lot about what's going on in Ukraine that doesn't seem to make all that much sense and doesn't seem to be rational from the Russian side. And the, the question is, why do we believe that these current arguments you know, will will be heated, and that that's what will get yeah, at the end of the day uh, carry, and and that you know at some Putin will at some point just step back, and and you know that's a hope. I mean, that could be correct. Sure, but just in the last minute, Daniel Holtz, yes. what concerns me is that the we know that the Russian military is performing poorly, and has been hollowed out by corruption. The Russian military is also the custodians of their, their huge nuclear arsenal. So if the Russian state collapses, then what happens to those weapons? Is there any way that there can be some kind of international way that people step in and try and stabilize the situation in Russia some way or other? I mean, at the moment, the Russian military is being challenged by a, a warlord with the Wagner Group. Yes, I mean, it's it's a terrifying situation. So I think if if Russia does collapse in that way, that they actually start to lose control of their weapons, um, I, I think you, you know that could be the, the most dangerous outcome of all of this, um, because there are a lot of them, and and I, it's hard to see how that could cleanly be you know, solved. So I, I don't, I, I don't think that 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 is anyone's hope or you know aspiration here. And you know, I mean, the, I, I, the, the point to remember in all of this, and I think this is fair, is that if if you know Russian troops kind of move back across the border, all, all of this kind of goes away to some extent. I mean. There's lots of damage has been done, but the immediate threats settle down. But what's happening now is, as you said, it's escalation. We're going in the other direction. Direct confrontation is looking more and more likely. And, you know, at some point they may feel that a, a nuclear weapon is, it's their Hail Mary. It's the only thing they can do to survive as a state or for Putin to survive as a leader. And and I think that's the consequence that has people most nervous, from what I can tell. And I don't know how much control we have over that sort of scenario. Well, Daniel Holtz, I thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you so you. much for for the discussion, and thanks thanks for you know this is clearly a critically important topic. And again, I've been speaking with Daniel Hulse, the co-chair of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists Science and Security Board and a professor at the University of Chicago, the Enrico Fermi Institute and the Kavli Institute for Cosmological Physics. And he has an article at CNN co-written with former California Governor Jerry Brown, The Doomsday Clock is Ticking, Clock's Hands Move Closest Ever to Midnight and Catastrophe. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. 
And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America The quiet voice singing something to me An angel song about the home of the grave in this land here One more light goes out in America